whatever approval you seek, you become their prisoner. Therefore, choose your jailers with care and deliberation. That'll bring you much joy, happiness, and freedom. Good morning, and welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything. From food and lifestyle and medicine to nature, culture, and politics, there's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And today we talk with my old friend, or my words. His words are that this study can nourish personal community, especially interfaith, racial, economic, and environmental healing. And you certainly are the man for the job. You've been training since you were nine years old uh, and have written eight books, four of them on interfaith community work. You've also built a vibrant personal and community presence here in Seattle in co-founding the Interfaith Community Sanctuary, speaking and teaching worldwide as one of the three amigos with Pastor Don McKenzie and Rabbi Ted Falcon. And you continue to offer um, services, classes, and downright relaxing and inspiring Instagram videos. And you have a number of um, videos on your website which uh, talk about practices that a person can find. All of the details are at your website. And you really are one of the nicest people I think I know. Uh, Imam Jamal Rahman, we are so blessed and grateful to have you here on the podcast for Healing Neurology today. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a joy and privilege to be here. Thank you so much, Jillian. Thank you. So let's get right into it. Terrific. And and thank you for the gracious introduction. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. Wonderful. Thank you. So what what is the use of religion and poetry, uh, specifically Islam and the Quran, Ah. for health? Uh, You know, Jillian, first of all, I want to uh, make a discernment when we talk about religion. Uh, it's not so much the institution of religion, mm-hmm. but more the uh, spiritual heart of the religion. Because, uh-huh. as you know, uh, institutional religion can go astray. It gets too focused on uh, recruitment and fundraising. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. So in a, in a very general way, I would say that, um, just to make a couple of points, uh-huh. that both religion and poetry, uh, they have the capacity to inspire and particularly uh, in times of difficulties, in times of stress, give hope. Mm. There's a wonderful verse in the Quran that says that uh, the earth was parched and dry, mm-hmm. but then the waters of mercy came down and the earth was clothed in green. Mm. And the, it goes on, so other verses in the Quran says, it is divinity who sends down rain when humankind has lost all hope and divinity unfolds its grace. Mm. Then there's a poetry by uh, Rumi. Um, I I know that you're familiar with Rumi, Mm -hmm. that 13th century sage who who was both an Islamic theologian and a very great philosopher, Mm. a wise being, you might say. So he has his poetry. He says, uh, Dear heart, never lose hope. Miracles, they dwell in the invisible. Mm. So even if the whole world turns against you, you have all kinds of problems, Keep your eyes on the friend, with a capital F, meaning on divinity. So that's the first point I want to make, that uh, religion and poetry gives us hope. The other point, I think, is that uh, particularly religion, uh, and also through poetry, it gives us practices Mm -hmm. which can really enhance 
uh, expand uh, our health both physically, emotionally, uh, mentally, spiritually. Simple things like just silence. You know, there's a Jewish saying that silence is a healing for all ailment. Hmm. Just to practice silence. And there's no such thing as a Jewish silence or a Muslim silence or a Christian silence or a Buddhist silence. It's just silence. So we know that by practicing silence, it is very, very healing. And then there are spiritual practices of uh, learning to forgive the other to embrace our difficult feelings and transform them. So to transform, for example, uh, through spiritual practices, anger into enthusiasm, vigor, uh, fear into mindfulness, then uh, learning to expand our compassion, our awareness. So these practices can be very, very healing. And lastly, you asked about Islam. Uh, the core of Islam is surrender. Islam means to surrender in peace. But the question is, what are you surrendering? And the Quran suggests you're surrendering your attachment to your ego so that you can bring not your ego but divinity in the center of your life. And this can be very healing in every possible way. Just one uh, uh, verse from Rumi who says, you know, he says, you know, where will you find a customer like God? who pays in gold, who accepts your counterfeit coins and uh, buys your dirty, shabby bag of goods and in return gives a spiritual spring so delicious that even sugar is jealous of its sweetness. <laughs> so this work is it's hard work. It's inconvenient work of bringing uh, divinity in the center of our life can be very, very uh, ennobling, enriching, and healing. I've given you a very long answer to your short question. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. I want to go back to silence for a second. Yes. There was recently a study that came out that showed that so people who had more silence, who had less brain activity uh -huh. throughout their life, actually had longer lives and healthier brains. That's beautiful. So yes. there is some evidence now that of what, of what you're talking about that we see in the neurology world, ah. that when we have moments of quiet, yes. we actually extend the life of our brain. And is it not amazing that every single religion uh, talks about the, the critical need for practicing silence? Mm -hmm. And Rumi has some wonderful insights about it. He says, he says uh, silence is not the absence of sound. Silence is the absence of that little self, that little I, 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 me, 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 always intervening, you see? So silence would mean just becoming still, going into what Buddhists would call nothingness. Then Rumi again says, silence is the language of God. Everything else is a poor translation. <laughs> then he ends up saying, be silent so that the Lord who gave you language may speak. For as he fashioned a door and a lock, he also made a key. So yes, the practice of silence, in, in any, from any tradition, if I do it regularly, it has a very profound impact in every possible way. Mm. I mean, we live in such a world where there is constant, and I'm going to say noise, not necessarily just meaning airplanes and trains and horns and heaters and phones, 
I mean, we live in a world in which there is constant input, advertising, marketing, how we should feel, what we should think, things that we should think about that are so far away we can do nothing about, and then the constant social media. How do we find silence within that? You know, uh, the, the, the elders, the sages have a word for it or a sentence for it. Uh, this is called the rattle of the cage of monkeys. You know, physical noises and also internal noises. You know, for me personally, what helps me is when I go into the practice of silence, I make an affirmation to myself. I tell myself, uh, may all these sounds, physical sounds or inner sounds, may they contribute to deepen my tranquility, mm. my calmness. So I use any sounds I have, again, to tell myself, may these deepen, expand, my tranquility. Uh, that's one point. Uh, the other point is, I think, with practice, and this is a, the, the most uh, <laughs> critical uh, insight, with practice, sounds, external and internal, will bother us less and less and less and less as we practice more and more and more and more. And the biggest danger about the practice of silence is, if I say, I'm going to practice silence because it's so good, when I have time, it never works. <laughs> what really works is be realistic if only you have five minutes in the entire day to practice silence you assign a certain time and place for those five minutes and build your schedule around that not build the silence around your schedule but the other way around then it works uh, for sure or uh, create a group you can practice silence with regularly so the community piece. Yes. The community for better, the peer pressure can be helpful. Very, oh, very helpful because, you know, uh, uh, there is a joy in that interconnectedness and it creates what is called a kinship of spirit. And even if you feel restless, but you, if you're in community, somehow it, uh, that collective energy will help you to deepen your own silence. Excellent. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you. While it's not called neurology and by Rumi or Hafiz or the poets, um, when we think about our neurology, it's really what we're talking about is our psychoneuroimmunology. So our mind, our nervous system, and our immune system, all of those are very closely linked. And this is the kind of gestalt perception and processing of behavior of being safe in the world. Uh, silence is only possible if we if we can actually retreat our perception, if we can actually pull back on paying attention to our, our surroundings, which we need to feel safe in order to do that, right? right? If the lion is at our tail, it's not a time to sit silently and shut out the external world. Uh -huh. So what do these practices tell us about how to find safety? You know, first of all, I think uh, the most basic point about safety is um, to really be in authentic community to find refuge, uh, to find consolation, to find strength in community. Rumi has a poetry about it. He says, you know, a, a wall standing alone is useless, but add to it other walls, it can support a roof, even a granary of abundance. Another poetry is uh, only when ink joins with a pen can the blank paper say something? And my most favorite one is, you know, he exclaims, uh, he says, this is the key to life, with its happiness or safety or joy. He says, please 
come out of the circle of time. Come out of the circle of time and enter the circle. So we have to somehow create that, find that, and build an authentic community. That'll give us really a feeling of safety. The other point I would make is that um, many conflicts we see outside of ourselves and that we encounter, we confront, we experience, is really a reflection of the conflicts we have within ourselves. Our anger, our unmet feelings, uh, our unresolved uh, need to forgive or to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. So that inner work of being able to heal that dysfunction, to uh, overcome that chasm, you might say, inside of conflict. Uh, and there's so many spiritual practices, you know, learning to forgive, to be compassionate and merciful with oneself, uh, how to be compassionate with others, uh, expanding your higher awareness. All these practices to restrain your anger are, are very critical in feeling safe. Because then I'll realize everything outside is a mirror of what I'm feeling inside of me. But the community is very critical also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in our world today where we often don't have control over aspects of our community, perhaps who we work with, yes. or even the larger kind of social mores that include oppression, right? Sexism yes. or racism. Yes. How do we, how do we find peace within within perhaps constant threat. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, in, in, in Sufism, there is a technique where they realize that it is so difficult to create what is called authentic community. And what is authentic community? Uh, it is finding people or, you know, could be animals, could be elements of nature, but let's say people uh, who pass through several gateways. One, the first gateway and this is in many traditions, including Islam. The first gateway is there has to be love, uh, you know, between the two. Number two is there has to be trust. Because without trust, there's no will, ability, capacity to be vulnerable. And without vulnerability, it's not a real community. If everything is nice, wonderful, great, well, you, you begin to get suspicious. Maybe they're not going <laughs> deep enough, you see. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't mean that you create difficulties. But uh, the, the, the element of trust, where one is really sincerely, genuinely able to be vulnerable, is very critical. And the third element, again, in all traditions, is any, any member or members who are a member of your community, uh, may they be always aspiring for the truth. The common saying is, find friends, find members who love the truth. Uh, in, in the Quran, there's a verse that says, tawasaw bil haqqi wa tawasaw bil sabr. Gather together with groups who teach each other truth and patience. So that community uh, is very, very uh, critical. But what I wanted to say was, if it's difficult to find that outer community, in Islamic spirituality, you have a practice where you create what is called an inner community, an inner circle of love. So if I'm in an environment where there's, everybody's very hostile and it's, it's genuinely so, uh, I can, in my meditation, in my inner landscape, I can summon what is called my inner circle 
of love, meaning who is it I'd like to summon? People, living or deceased, uh, animals, elements of nature, uh, religious beings, Merlin the magician, imaginative, imaginary beings. The only limitation is my belief system. But again, three gateways. Who is it I want to summon? Could be one, could be two, could be 17. But whoever I summon loves me. There's love there. I love. Number two, there is trust. Number three, they all aspire for the truth. So I summon them there and I just bask in the love they have for me in my imaginary, imaginative trance state. Mm. And just be there and have those members just send their light and love because it is in their nature to love you. And you just remain there and receive that infusion. Because the truth is, you know, if I have to, in a very cliched way, summarize life, it's all about love. It's about being loved, not being loved, and wanting to be loved. <laughs> the rest is all posturing, you see. <laughs> so, Sufi uh, practitioners say, no matter what the affliction is, and you don't have the community you can really be in the presence of, create this inner community and just be there and allow yourself, give yourself permission for them to love you and just remain in that state. And that can be very, very healing. So in many classes I teach, uh, sometimes these last months, how to create that inner circle of love where the only limitation is your belief system, but they have to pass through those three gateways and just be there in silence and receive and just revel and bask in the love they send to you. And that can be, I know from my own personal experience, which is why I am uh, expounding on it, can be utterly uh, healing and empowering and transforming. Mm. It really speaks to our microbiome of the physical body. One thing that we know is that our cells are outnumbered by the organisms that live in our gut and on our skin all around us. In fact, there's 10 times more of them than there are of us. Mm. So we really, truly are a symbiotic organism. Uh -huh. Taking care of our, the organisms that live in us and on us can actually really change. And we see this in, in research as well. Uh, yes. It changes the mind. So if we have infections in our gut, if we have chronic infections even in our oral cavity in our mouth with chronic cavities that aren't oh, taken oh. care of we can have inflammation that can give our system information that changes our mood our sleep mm -hmm. our uh, perception of safety and so that inner circle uh -huh. ha does have one at least one physical correlation oh beautiful yes so are you saying that if for example you have that ailment in any part of your body if you have a practice where you send it love it can have a very deep impact? That's a great question that I don't uh -huh. think research has uh -huh. broached. Uh -huh. In fact, for the last 20 years, every probably once or twice a year, I go on to PubMed, uh -huh. which is our repository for all research, you know, uh -huh. millions and millions of articles, and I search for the keyword of love. Uh -huh. And I've uh -huh. been doing this 20 years, and I have yet to find one article with a keyword of love, uh -huh. even though it is all about our health and uh -huh. our science and what we know about medicine uh -huh. and... I agree with you. We are here for love. We are yes. here for connection. Yes. We're here for understanding and growth and community. Yes. And the love and love lost and love regained and all these various perspectives uh -huh. 
but there's not one keyworded article in our PubMed oh. repository. <laughs> so that research has yet to be done. Perhaps a listener today will take Terrific. that Terrific, yes, yes. But you know, I, I've, in the past, of course, I... Uh, I, I travel so much, I, I don't have time for that too much these days, but in the past, I used to see a lot of clients, and a lot of them were heart patients. Mm. And mm. Uh, this is just anecdotal, of course, it's, it's not researched, but mm. I always found that when I shared with them the techniques of loving their heart, mm -hmm. or telling the heart, I love you, mm -hmm. and it was first very awkward, mm -hmm. uh, very... Uh, squeamish they felt you know mm -hmm. but as they kept doing it again and again and kept telling the heart i love you i really love you and touching the heart making a connection with the heart the improvement was in some cases fantastically dramatic actually yes and there are articles it's bringing uh -huh. to mind there are uh -huh. articles about meditation uh -huh. so in our western vernacular we may not call it love but yes. focusing positive attention yes yes Giving it attention, yes, yes. acknowledgement, and uh, uh, yeah, love can be, love is a very, of course, a, <laughs> it's a much used <laughs> word, giving it affection, acknowledgement, yeah. connection, uh, chatting with it. <laughs> yes, yeah. developing a relationship with Developing a relationship, yes, yes, yes. Because uh, we know, now we know for sure that uh, a predictor of uh, longevity and happiness is having good relationships. Yes. So having a good relationship with your organ that is crying out for acknowledgement, I think can be very healing. Yes. <laughs> we need to do this as research. We need to yes, bring yes. our science into That's our right. realms. Yes. And maybe do it ourselves and then we can speak yes. with a sense of inner certainty. Yes. <laughs> inner knowing. Yes. In a humble way. Yes. yes. <laughs> How is a good life defined? A good life. Ah, what defines a good life? You know, uh, for me, when you say a good life, we have to become aware that we have a body and we also have what you might call a soul. So it really behooves us to really take care of our body because it is, uh, you might say, the temple of our soul, the house where the soul resides. Uh, and that means you have a good lifestyle, you, you eat well. But a good question is, Jamal, what are you doing to nurture and nourish your soul? I can't miss out on that. And, and the soul loves, uh, you know, something we can't quantify. Silence, uh, love, affection, compassion, prayers, uh, sunsets, children, music. So we have to really uh, nourish and nurture both the body and the soul. And if you do that, that's leading a good life, which Rumi says, uh, actually has this insight. He says, he says, if you really want joy, contentment, fulfillment in life, he says, over a lifetime, work equally in the visible world as also in the invisible world. So he actually, uh, first of all, he has a poetry that says, don't think all ecstasies are the same. And he goes on to say, Jesus was drunk on love for God. His donkey was drunk on barley, mm -hmm. meaning his body, you see? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then he says, he gives an example, he says, about visible, invisible world. He says, this is a metaphor. A person is on a horse, and the mission is to go to a certain destination. He crosses mountains, uh, dangerous forests, deserts, but now he comes to a large body of water. 
this horse that he has is not able to cross that large body of water. Now he needs a silent, mystical, wooden horse to cross that body of water. So meaning, we need two kinds of horses to really accomplish our mission in life, in the visible world and invisible world. And I'm thinking right now, there's a very famous uh, Sufi teacher who said that a true human being is one who participates fully in the bazaar of life, getting married, having children, having mother-in-law problems, father-in-law problems, <laughs> mortgage problems, buying, selling, but never once forgetting God. That's a good life. Mm. You know, Hafiz is a, is a, is a, one, is a 14th century uh, poet, very beloved in the Islamic world. And he has this poetry that, you know, um, on your deathbed, the greatest regret might be that, oh world, oh universe, I have not kissed you enough. I've not experienced life, you see, that full catastrophe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that is the highs and the lows. Yes, absolutely. Embracing your 10,000 joys and also your 10,000 sorrows of life. And we tend to avoid them. We tend to push them away, forgetting that they're there for a purpose. You see, if I may philosophize a little bit, uh, the Quran says, Allah in the Quran says, of everything we have created, we have created opposites. So you might know only God is one. Not just in Islam. For example, in Taoism, they emphasize it a lot. You know, high is defined by low, uh, long by short. Rumi says, God turns you from one feeling to another. So you might have two wings to fly, not one. And then the Quran goes on to say, all feelings are sacred. Not only my happy feelings, joyous feelings, but my difficult feelings, anger, jealousy, uh, grief. Uh, so in, in Islamic spirituality called Sufism, the techniques for realizing these difficult feelings are sacred. I have to find a technique of acknowledging them, embracing them, loving them, and then integrating them. That is how my anger transforms, as we said earlier, into enthusiasm, my fear into mindfulness. And that is why Rumi has his poetry, the dark thought, the shame, the malice, greet them at the door laughing. Each one has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's not that you run towards difficult feelings, just don't run away from them. You know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he would say in times of affliction, Oh God, in these difficult times, Oh God, save me from its harm, but do not deprive me of its good. But it is important that if you are suffering, I don't tell you that, oh, there is something good there, something, a lesson will emerge. That would be the uh, height of folly. That has to emerge from, from you, from within yourself, you see. Uh, and if I tell you that, I'm playing God. That's not my role. <laughs> my role is just to support you and to give you love and nurturance. So what do we say to others who we see who are suffering? You know, I think more than uh, saying, just be of authentic help to them. I'll give you a more extreme example, the common question. 
Uh, in fact, my Jewish friends, you know, they, they, we talk about that when they study Hinduism and Buddhism, sometimes they get very upset at the word karma. Mm -hmm. So are you telling me that the Holocaust happened, the Shoah happened because we had, all of us had bad karma? You know, how do you explain that, you see? And uh, it's a difficult question. Uh, so to put it in a very uh, understandable way, the very common question asked is, why do difficult things, bad things happen to innocent people, good people? There is no real answer to that. I mean, if I try to explain that, it's, it's folly, it's silly. None of us know. It's, it's like Rumi says, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. But there's one story I'd like to share with you uh, in Islamic, uh, the Quranic and mythology, where in the Quran there's a verse that says, before God sent all of humanity down to earth, which is called the unborn humanity, he gathered all the unborn humanity and said to them, am I not your sustainer? And apparently all of us said, yes, 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 you are our, you are our Lord, you are a sustainer. And then God said, before you go down to earth, this is the mythology part. I'm going to take you to this place here. And there's a huge cosmic tree. They all go there. And he says, look at the cosmic tree. There are packages attached to the limbs of the trees. Some are small, some are medium, some are large. And God said, you know, I've told you, it is a world of opposites. These are packages of suffering. Each one of you has to take a package before you go down to Mother Earth. The more noble ones among us, they chose to take the larger packages so others would suffer less. So the, 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 the moral of this story is when somebody is suffering, no matter what the suffering is, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, they may be one of the ones who have taken the larger packages my job is not to analyze or ponder or to, you know, uh, say something, which is fine. I, I, I need to say nourishing words, but my main job is to be of help, to really do all I can to be of service in gratitude because they're the ones who chose the larger packages. But what can I say? Uh, I can only be present. Uh, if I may tell you one more story, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I sometimes do hospice work and there's this lady who was passing away and I was her spiritual companion and I would go and read Romi poetry, I would do chanting and, and one day she held my hand and said, Jamal, thank you so much for your Rumi poetry, for your chanting, for your wise insights from the different traditions. But you know what I really need is for you to be present with me. Of course, I'd heard that before from others. So I said, you know, and I was, uh, you know, kind of a little bit rattled. I said, tell me more. What do you mean by that? I really wanted to learn. She said, you know, Jamal, when you're here, and I sometimes I can sense you're awkward, you feel awkward, be awkward. Your awkwardness is healing to me. If you feel speechless, be speechless. Your lack of words, your speechlessness is utterly healing for me. If you want to say something, say something, no matter what it is. That is most healing to me. In that moment, I realized that what it means to be present and how to be with those who require just for me to be simply myself, authentic, and be present. That is most healing. Mm -hmm. What wise words. Yes, I, I, have, I, I learned so much from that person because it was an experiential 
-hmm. in the heat of the moment, uh, authentic, genuine insight that, uh, as Rumi would say, Rumi would say, splashed in my heart. (laughs) (laughs) What's important about us is that we show up. Right, yes. So that it is not necessarily what a person says, what you say to a person who is suffering, um, or trying to make their feelings go away, but that's, it's just continuing to show up and saying, bring your feelings, I'm here. Absolutely, and, and, and to be genuinely present, mm-hmm. and to be with whatever feelings come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right, I'm I, right meaning, uh, I, I really resonate with that, just to make that effort to be in authentic presence. Mm-hmm. Are there recommendations for when both people are having big feelings at the same time? In our culture, there's so much for us to digest Mm -hmm. that ideally we would be able to be in community where one person could have feelings Mm -hmm. and the other could listen and attend, and then they could switch. But I think what I see around me is that Mm -hmm. everybody's having feelings (laughs) at exactly the same time. I think the solution to that, and that happens in our congregation also, is to agree initially and for some time just to sit in silence. Hmm. to be totally silent. And it's like the waters are disturbed, the dirt has been stirred, and just to be in silence, and then the dust settles down. And then after a period of silence, whoever whoever is inspired to say something, and the other person is more able to really just listen. So rooting down first, really grounding. That's right, becoming centered, becoming rooted, as you say, and truly experiencing authentic silence, which is not the absence of sound, absence of that little self, me, 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 I, I, I. And from that place, beautiful creative ways and solutions will emerge. And when somebody will say something, the other person is more inclined and more able to truly listen. Now, Rumi has this wonderful insight. He says, what is listening? Listening is metaphorically putting your head on the person's chest and just sinking sinking into the answer. And that can happen when we have experienced moments of silence. Join the show today. Please be sure to share with your friends and rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and check out our other shows as well. We talk about everything. You can get all the details of our clinic and the services we offer through our website, centerforhealingneurology.com and remember to find out more about Imam Jamal Rahman's books and upcoming work his YouTube channel Call of Compassion Northwest if you search Call of Compassion Northwest and his name Jamal J-A-M-A-L there are a multitude 50 to 60 different practices and short videos two, three, six minute videos that's right and some of them include sacred naming, sacred holding, heart meditation. Yes, right. And there's more information about um, Islam and Sufism That's right. as well. And interfaith also, yeah. And interfaith work. So please do remember to check those out, as well as his eight books and his classes <laughs> that he offers. Thank you. You know the value of every article of merchandise, but if you don't know the value of your own soul, it's all foolishness. So I became aware of this verse in a more heart knowledge way after I finished my master's from University of California at Berkeley. 
and then I was in the PhD program, I left that to study with my parents about Islamic spirituality. And that was the, a phase of my life where I never came back to academics. I just began to go deeper and deeper into spiritual study with my parents and to the teachers they sent me to uh, on uh, Islamic psychology, Islamic uh, spirituality, just deepening, but mostly doing the work on yourself. That's the f one phase of my life. The second phase where it was transformative is when my parents died, and they died tragically. My mother came to visit me, and shockingly she fell ill the very first night. In seven days she passed away. Wow. And then when my father heard the news, who was in Bangladesh, I come from that country, he was about he was going to visit us here. When he heard the news, he was so shocked. My, my parents were a very close-knit couple, that in 20 days he died of a heart attack. Oh, wow. So they both passed away. But wow. in a way that... Uh, you know, created an opening for me where I'm very close to my parents, but I, in my knowledge of, uh, you know, spirituality, I think I moved a little bit from what is called knowledge of the tongue to a knowledge of the heart. I realized uh, for the first time that, yes, there is traffic and trade, as Rumi says, in the invisible world. And so in that phase, I, I decided that let me do what I really aspire to do. I want to build community. I want to teach classes. So all those different things I was doing, I let go of that. I took the plunge. And in my house, I opened a center for teaching classes. And I was shocked that lots of people came. And then I realized that that is the community I'm looking for. And then we began to have what is called a circle of love. In those days, there was not internet, but we used to have worship services in different people's homes, and we used to get together through phone trees, and some people had huge homes. And I realized that this is great for me. It's giving me income. It's giving me a satisfaction of building community, being in community, doing what I really aspire to do. But it has to satisfy everybody. So I asked everybody, what is your heart aspiration? Some said, I also want to teach classes, but I'm too... Uh, shy about marketing. We said, okay, we'll bring the people. You just focus on the classes. Some people said, uh, we need a little bit more money to supplement our rental income. They're all sincere, genuine people. We were able to create that. In other words, we satisfied people's heartfelt aspirations, and it became a circle of love where we met in different people's homes, both Sunday services, teaching classes in people's homes who had large houses. And then the third phase is by grace of God, we were led to this place you are here today. Uh, it's the oldest church building in Seattle, wooden frame building, built in 1890-1890. And uh, by an extraordinary train of events, this beautiful historic site church building was given to us as a gift. So our knees are scraped with gratitude that when we needed a physical space because our numbers were increasing so fast, we got this building as a gift. Wow. So we have renamed it Interfaith Community Sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of interfaith activities that happen in the city, we are either initiating, we're certainly participating in them. And from this is also, uh, we are allied with the Interfaith Amigos, where I work ever since 9-11 with a... Uh, 
a rabbi, Rabbi Ted Falcon, and a pastor, a Christian pastor, Donald McKenzie, and we are called the Interfaith Amigos. So our work in Interfaith also continues. And that is a story for which I am so grateful because we have been given so many gifts. As I said, my knees are scraped with gratitude. I believe in the miracle and power of prayers and sincere, heartfelt aspirations. What is the work you're excited to do next? You know, I, I uh, love to talk about what is the commonality among religions. Mm -hmm. We also like to talk about where religion has gone astray. We feel we must have the moral courage and the compassion to really articulate in a loving way where the institution of religion has gone astray. doesn't matter what religion, in areas of, for example, exclusivity, mm -hmm. violence, uh, unequal status of women, homophobia, then, you know, apathy about social justice issues, but particularly about planetary degradation. So my work is about raising awareness about that. And personally, for myself and people I come in t uh, contact with, to do the inner inconvenient work of transforming the ego, uh, opening up the heart, to become a more complete, developed human being so we can be of authentic service to God's creation. So my work is about uh, raising awareness, consciousness, personally, collectively, in the area of personal growth, of uh, religion, and interfaith, through books, through videos, through uh, presentations, through interviews like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's such a treat for me to see your joy doing this work. I can Thank you. It. Yes, I, I feel I have found my passion, oh. uh, as uh, Joseph Campbell would say, mm -hmm. and I uh, found my bliss. I think he called it finding your bliss. Uh, I feel very grateful that I have been able to wonderful. connect with that. That's wonderful. And I get to meet people like you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and we met... <clears throat> uh, when my hair was black. When your hair, yes. <laughs> many years ago. Yes, yeah, many yeah. years ago. In Harborview, I think. Yeah. At Harborview Medical Center, which is our big inner city mission-driven hospital here in Seattle. Yes. And you were on a panel for um, about hospice and death and dying and right. kind of dying well. Ah, yes. Which, yes. as a nurse practitioner, when I wow. see patients in clinic, my job is to heal them or fix them. Wow. But I have found that really if you, if you take it to the end, then... Yes. It can be very helpful for patients. And I say to them, you know, my goal isn't that you're going to live forever. My goal is that you live to about 100 and uh -huh. that you're able to pass at the way, time, and way of your choosing. Uh -huh. So that we have our ultimate goal in mind. The goal is not that you will heal uh -huh. and never be sick again in your life, uh -huh. but that the goal is we'll continue to ebb and flow, have this visible and invisible world, as you were saying, yes. such a beautiful analogy, and that then we can go as we are ready. Beautiful, beautiful. That's a very beautiful spiritual insight. Uh, that this is a law of the created world. Whosever approval you seek, you become their prisoner. It's not a question of good or bad. It's a question of awareness. And if uh, if I meditate on that, so this is what was given to me uh, from my teachers, my most treasured teachers, my parents. They Jamal, meditate on this. And they would repeat it again and again. Whosever approval you seek, you become their prisoner. Just be with that. Do you really understand that? I thought, of course I understand that. And I would explain, they would say, no, you have not understood it. It's, a, it's more of a knowledge of the time, not a knowledge of the heart. When they felt I had some understanding, then they gave me the answer to that. Choose your jailers. Choose your jailers with care and deliberation. That's the answer to that.
You know, whosever approval you seek, you become their prisoner. Therefore, choose your jailers with care and deliberation. That'll bring you much joy, happiness, and freedom. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. At one of the events that we had set up, it was at a. It was actually, I think, at a coffee shop. That's in, right. I remember either that. Either Seattle or Tacoma. Yes, yes. Um, and somebody stood up and said, uh -huh. um, "I can't remember exactly how they phrased it, but it uh -huh. was a question of like, if what you say is true, right, right, then how can, how can there be some of Islamic faith who do what they do Absolutely, involved with yes. violence yes. or yes. terrorism, and how do these things? How are they learning what you're talking about right. as children in them? Right. How does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, How do those coexist? Right. Um, it's, it's a very, and I just, yes, actually, uh, I want to just uh, preface it by saying, yes. since that time, yes. 15 plus years ago, right. um, we've seen more and more, uh, um, I think, uh, white Christian domestic terrorists. Right. And so right. It, I think that the analogy is not so focused anymore Um on one particular and any one particular religion, yes. but the same with Christianity, which has beautiful tenets. How do we have beautiful tenets, and then Absolutely. we have it something done in that name yes. that is violent? Yes, I would say first of all, there are many uh, reasons for it, uh, uh, but we, have, we we must have the moral courage to speak the truth. Uh, when these things, terrible things happen, I feel it is not so much religion speaking; it is human ego speaking. You know, Rumi has a wonderful uh, insight. He says, a bee and a wasp, they drink from the same flower. A bee and a wasp, they drink from the same flower. One produces nectar, other one produces a sting. <laughs> so it depends on the human nature. Uh, first of all, about Islam, we have to acknowledge, yes, there are fanatical, uh, profoundly conservative uh, Islamic extremists. There's no doubt about that. It, mm -hmm. it exists. Uh, is religion causing that or is my need to use religion to justify my anger or my hopelessness or helplessness? You see, the Quran has another verse that says, when there is chronic anger, chronic fear, chronic hopelessness, helplessness, it's not that the Eyes become blind, the hearts become blind. When the hearts become blind because of the conditioning, you know, uh, terrible things I'm told about this or that, uh, or because of anger, my own biases, then, you know, my heart becomes blind, I end up in saying terrible and crazy things. That's one point. The other point is we have to realize, and, you know, we, uh, I and the Interfaith Amigos, as we have studied our scriptures and traveled, we've realized that every single religion has two kinds of verses, particular and universal. Particular verses are those verses that are in desperate need of historical and textual context. And the universal verses are verses that are timeless, placeless, and filled with wisdom. The danger is, if I take a particular verse and advocate that as a universal verse, or I take a particular verse from Islam and I compare that from a universal verse from Christianity, as it is happening. Mm -hmm. See, the, those, those two don't right. equate. Right. Uh, and 
so you have to be very, very careful about that. I'll give you an example. I hope I'm not going too long, but I want to give you a specific example. In chapter 5, verse 51 in the Quran, there's a verse that says, do not take the Jews and Christians as your friends and protectors because they are friends and protectors of each other. It's a divine revelation. So those Muslims who don't want to have peace with Christians and Jews, they will quote that. See? The Quran says this. They are friends and protectors of each other. Don't trust them, you see. But what is the historical context of this verse? This verse came down at a time when the community of Islam was a tiny, embryonic, struggling community, struggling to survive, surrounded by enemies, 10 times superior in armaments, always wanting to crush that movement. And to survive, that small community needed to have military treaties, pacts, with certain Christian and Jewish tribes. And according to Muslims, these particular tribes, tribes they broke their treaties depending on how the battle was going. So it is at that time that verse came down about those particular tribes. That's a particular verse. You see, just uh, 16, 17 verses down, uh, 569, there's a universal verse which says, it doesn't matter what your religion is. And it says specifically, you could be a Jew, a Christian, or a Sabian. What takes you to heaven is not your religion. It's having faith in God, but mostly doing righteous deeds. I say mostly because this is repeated many times in the Quran, that what takes you to heaven is not your religion, your color, your tribe, your gender. What takes you to heaven is doing righteous deeds. So which one you choose depends on your consciousness and on your intention. But I have to acknowledge there's certainly uh, people within the fold of Islam who are fanatics, who are religious extremists. There's no denying that. We also have to have the moral courage to say that no matter how many explanations you do, there still are verses in any holy book that are difficult, that are awkward. There's no need to do all kinds of complicated posturings to explain it away. They're difficult. Like Rumi says, in these matters, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. <laughs> <laughs> That is an amazing distinction between particular verses and universal yes. verses. I can think of many Jewish and Christian verse, particular verses, which are, you know, stoning your neighbor because he has coveted your wife. Or, you know, we would yes. never do that today. Yes. We would never. Yes. But there are certainly, now the world feels so crazy. I can imagine where somebody could quote that and say, well, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But, right. It's that that certainly is a particular and not a universal. Absolutely. And so they're in all religions. You know, there's a joke uh, for all the holy books that sometimes we wish we could use whiteout <laughs> or or engage in holy amnesia. Holy amnesia. <laughs> That's great. Yes. And we would probably come up with new ones, you know, if we were writing them today, like, thou shall not use your smartphone at the dinner table. <laughs> yes. And we have to remember, remember that everything needs evolve. Everything is evolving. Yes. And the criteria is it has to, to be nonviolent and it has to serve the common good. Yes. So we have to use our higher consciousness to really reframe many of those uh, previous medieval insights and interpretations. Yes. You see, Gandhi had a wonderful insight. He would say that, you know, um, every, every religion has truths and untruths. Mm -hmm. And when some people got excited, he would say, listen, I'm not saying that your revelations are not divine. They're divine. 
But don't forget, the human mind is less than divine. So when a human mind touches a divine verse, the understanding can be less than divine. Mm. So our work is those difficult verses, particular verses, we have to use our higher consciousness to really give it a higher life-giving interpretation where it serves the common good. And this brings us back to the role of practice. Yes. Uh, the importance of practice. Yes. And yes. the importance of practice on a daily, recurrent, Absolutely. routine basis. Absolutely. I mean, that's why it's called spiritual practice. You've got to practice it. And medical <laughs> practice. <laughs> that's because, you know, I, mean, it, what, I think there's a word in English, oxymoron, like, I'm uh -huh. so busy teaching meditation, I have no time for meditation. <laughs> very insightful for you to say for you to bring up building your routine around your five minutes of meditation right, building yes, yes. your life around that That's because right. it's very true that we have to build our lives to the best of our ability and especially as I would say as parents with young children yes. because young children really direct your schedule oh, in ways that you have yes, no yes. control over uh -huh. now the baby is sleeping now the baby is toileting now the yes. baby needs to eat and yes. so your schedule becomes very unpredictable Absolutely, yes. um, but trying to find five minutes every day yes. or a few times a day to really find that silence that's going to help your brain that's beautifully said live longer. as a mother you have said that so eloquently and to realize that you know uh, spiritual progress is little by little do it little, little by, by little. little and if you do it little by little the traditions say and certainly in sufism it says there comes a quantum jump mm -hmm. but the quantum jump that uh, extraordinary jump happens because you're doing it little by little my problem is i want the quantum jump but not that little by little <laughs> <laughs> yes i want the six pack abs but not to go to the gym every day that's right yeah <laughs> yes well, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it was my honor, my delight, my pleasure, and so wonderful to see you. And you haven't aged much at all, believe yeah. me. And I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> so whatever you are doing medicinally or lifestyle-wise oh, or spiritually, write about it. Pass it on. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Likewise, I feel the same way. Even though the hair color may be different, the face is identical. Thank you, thank you. So again, this is Mr. Jamal Rahman. He is a Sufi imam. You can find his information at his website, jamalrahman.com, as well as at his YouTube channel, Call of Compassion Northwest, and searching by his name, Jamal, for 50 to 60 different practices that you can choose to incorporate over the next, say, year. Perhaps we'll do this again in a year. Terrific. And I want to give one more website if I can, yeah. interfaithamigos.com. Interfaithamigos.com. Wonderful. Right. Thank yeah. you. Thank you And the so Interfaith much. Community Sanctuary That's also right. has resources. Absolutely, yes. Interfaithcommunitysanctuary.org. .org. Great. Yes. So thank you for listening today. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would love to hear what you've learned today. You can also get more information from us and about us on our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Or even better, come see us in person in our Seattle-based clinic. Please be sure to share this show with your friends. I think everybody needs this one. <laughs> and we welcome your rating and your reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to send your topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. And we love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make your our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. 
Thank you for listening. See you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.